page 932. If you're joining with us today for the first time, we are working our way through the book of Acts. Nearing the end, we will, uh, if the Lord wills, uh, finish by Easter. And uh, today we come to Acts chapter 23. We read this chapter in its entirety, actually beginning with uh, the final verse of the previous chapter. Let's give attention to God's word. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the tribune, Lysias, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. 
So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's palace. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. In these final chapters of Acts, we jump from scene to scene Uh, of Paul being dragged before one group or an individual to the next, where he's to give an account of his innocence, both before Jewish law and Roman law. He's already been in front of a Jewish mob, and then he dealt briefly with the Roman um, tribune at the end of chapter 23. They were about to whip him and scourge him to get more information, and that's when he said, I'm actually a Roman citizen, you can't do that. Now it's before the Sanhedrin that he's brought at the start of chapter 23, concludes with him being brought to the governor Felix. After that, Festus, then Agrippa. It can be easy to lose track of what's going on with Paul and to lose our orientation in these final chapters. But at the very start of chapter 23, which I want you to look at now, verse 1 of chapter 23, we find some help in understanding how Paul orients himself In every single one of these situations, we're kind of losing track. Who is he standing before? What does he need to give a defense for? And yet Paul helps us understand very clearly that he does not consider himself to be in front of a Roman tribune or tribunal or even a Jewish council. But in every instance, he stands before God and God alone. Look at what he says to the Sanhedrin brothers. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The word uh, that we have translated in our versions, lived my life, um, is actually a, a Greek word which means to be a citizen. comes from the noun polis, city, to be a citizen. And so what Paul is saying there is something that we considered last week about his dual citizenship, right? It's not just that... Um, He has this Roman citizenship, but it's that he has a heavenly citizenship. That's his real dual citizenship. And what he says here is something to this effect. Brothers, Jewish leaders, I have lived as a faithful citizen, not primarily before you, and not even primarily before the Roman government, 
but before the one before whom it really matters. The ultimate king before God. It's God whom he owes ultimate allegiance for it's God's eternal city where he is an ultimate citizen. So Paul says here that he lives his life before God. And the question I have for all of us today is, do we live our lives before God? There's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. It means before, literally before the face of God. Do you live as though God sees all? He does. Do you live as though it's before him alone that you will have to give an account? It is. Do you live as though there is only one person in all of life whose approval you need? There is. Do you live quorum Deo before the face of God? To live before him is the most important thing you can do in life. Will it mean difficulty at times? Yes. Yes. And we're going to see that even in this chapter. But with that difficulty comes the promise of a mighty deliverance, which we also see. So let's learn this important lesson today. Considering first Paul before the Lord. Paul quorum Deo. Paul before God. So last we left him, he had narrowly escaped being whipped and scourged, as I mentioned, by appealing to his citizenship in Rome. And so the tribune, Claudius Lysias, he cannot um, uh, torture him to get more information. And yet he's impatient to wait for more information. And so he has this idea. Maybe I'll call together the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 elders. And maybe I can get some more intel from them. Uh, This group is presided over by the high priest, in this case Ananias. And Lysias is hoping that they will have more answers or can get more answers. And it is before then that Paul makes that claim in verse 1 that he lives quorum Deo. He lives before God. So I want us to see, though, that Paul gets two things for living before God. Two things. The first is he receives a clean conscience. The result of living before God is that he has a clean conscience. Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, decades and decades ago, it was a whistling cricket who told Pinocchio, take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, but always let your conscience be your guide. How cute, how charming. Well, fast forward to today, and our culture, by and large, has absorbed that message as, uh, or that that advice from from Jiminy Cricket as a valid and healthy way to navigate life with conscience alone at the helm. The conscience, friends, how do we understand the conscience? The conscience, at its best, is God's echo, in the words of one old pastor. Old in the sense like he lived, he's dead a long time ago. Not that he's an elderly man. Hundreds of years ago, one pastor said, the conscience is God's echo in our minds. That's the conscience at its best, kind of resounding the words of God to us. But we can silence that conscience, can't we? And in silencing it, it can be seared and no longer be an accurate measure of right and wrong. Uh, the conscience, we could also consider it like a mirror. And when we look into it, we, we can see the sin in our hearts, the sin in our souls. And yet if we don't keep 
the, the mere clean, if we let it get grimy and dirty, then we don't see the sin any longer and we think everything is A-OK. Therefore, friends, your conscience is not an infallible compass. But God is. His word is. And Paul has God as his guide, and that results with a clean, a pleased, and a contented conscience. And if you've ever had a clean conscience, or maybe I should say, if you've ever had a guilty conscience, you really know the blessing of having a clean conscience. Paul, because he uses God as his guide, has then that clean, contented conscience. But if you reverse it, and if you have conscience be your guide, there is no guarantee that you will have a pleased and contented God. Do you see? And so he serves God first, and that ends with a clean conscience. Do you have a clean conscience today? If not, if your sin is accusing you, if God is, is shouting at you to turn and repent, do not ignore that voice. Don't let your conscience become seared and silent. You will find peace when you live your life, Coram Deo, before the face of God, seeking to please him. And so, because Paul lives before God, he has a clean conscience. I said he gets two things, though. The first thing he gets is a clean conscience. The second thing is a fat lip. Right? Did you notice what happens? Brothers, I've lived my whole life before God, a faithful citizen of the heavenly uh, kingdom, with a clean conscience. And I says, punch him in the face. And that's what happens, literally. Strike him on the mouth. Now, that slap in the face makes a bit more sense if you consider what Paul is implying, or at least what they're inferring from what Paul has said. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, the highest officials in the religious system, and he stands there to give an account on whether he has committed wrongs according to that system and that custom. And the first thing he does is says, I'm actually appealing to a higher authority than you. He's saying, say of me what you want, but I know I'm a faithful citizen of God's kingdom. And there perhaps wouldn't have been anything more offensive for the Sanhedrin to have heard. They're thinking, who does this man think he is? We are the arbiters of a faithful citizen or not. We're the ones who determine if you can have a clean conscience before God or not. And so they attack him. And let's just point out, when the world attacks you, friends, it helps a lot when you have a clean conscience. Peter writes, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, it's one thing to have your enemies accusing you. That's hard enough. It's really hard when they're accusing you and your own conscience is also accusing you. But Paul knows that he's on the Lord's side, and so he maintains his determination to please God and not man. And that's why he responds the way he does in verse 3. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. It seems very... Strong, It is strong language, but what is he accusing them of? He says, you want me to get in line. But he replies by saying, these men who apparently care so much for the law of God don't themselves obey it. Because, as we heard in Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. Right? That's what Paul is likely referring to. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you punch me in the face? Intimidate the witness? This is not right. Injustice is abounding here. Paul has not yet been charged officially with any crime. Now they're guilty of intimidating him. And yet, when Paul is immediately told that the order to strike him came from the high priest, 
he changes his tune immediately, doesn't he? He repents, actually, in verse 5. And again, this is still Paul, Coram Deo, living before the face of God, because God's law also says that you do not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He's quoting from Exodus 22. So how interesting that Paul, who was so adamant that he was free from the law as a means of salvation, still never yet once throughout the law, he never tossed it out. Even though he said, I can't be saved by it, he never discarded it. Why? Well, now he has the law of Christ that compels him, saying that because Christ has freed him, from the law, now he willingly submits to it out of gratitude, out of obedience, out of a way to glorify God. He goes back to God's law, and that law included this commission to not revile or curse a ruler of your people. So, notice though, he does not redact what he says, but he does repent of the way in which he said it. He did not realize, he says, that Ananias the high priest gave the order that he should be Struck. Now, how could he not have known that? Well, Paul had not been in Jerusalem for years and years, and he would not yet have met Ananias, so he probably didn't recognize him. In fact, the historian uh, Josephus talks about what this character is like during his office, and he says that there would have been very little reason to respect this man, Ananias. Paul is facing that, uh, is dealing with that firsthand. He respects the office. He doesn't respect the man. Josephus said that, that he was known for greed and violence, and he was considered to be one of the most disgraceful profaners of that sacred office, according to a New Testament scholar. So Paul respects the office. He respects the position, the place of authority, and we need to as well, no matter who's occupying that position. Let me remind you of what our larger catechism teaches on this score. It's question 128, dealing with the fifth commandment. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? What are the sins of inferiors to their superiors? Answer. The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required of them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons. In their lawful counsels, their commands, and their corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such stubborn and scandalous behavior as proves the shame and dishonor to them and their government. Would we have uh, late night talk shows if we all took that seriously? What this command is requiring of us? If we took the honor that we owe our superiors seriously? How do you talk about Biden? How do you talk about Whitmer? Is it with cursing and mocking? If so, that's irreconcilable to our Christian faith. To live before the face of God, which Paul does, which acknowledges that God is the ultimate authority, does not negate other authorities in our lives. It's because God is the ultimate authority that Paul says, God's word tells me I must respect people in positions of authority over me. Even somebody like Ananias who says, Punch him in the face. And so, he obeys God's law. Paul does. Living before God means not only obeying the law, but also preaching his gospel. And so Paul starts again, verse 6. He's like, okay, 
we didn't get off to a good start, clearly. Let, let me try again. And so he says in verse 6, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, there was a sharp division among the Sanhedrin, that, that, that uh, council, because it was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and they had theological differences. The Pharisees believed in the spiritual world, and they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of those things. They did not believe in spirits, they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And, of course, one of the ways to keep that straight, how can I remember which one believed which, you know, right? The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Come on, guys. That's all I had. That's all I had. So Paul knows that, that there's this theological debate. And he probably knows that in bringing up the fact that he believes in the resurrection, there will be this contentious uh, division that maybe will distract from some of the uh, pressure that he's facing. But that is not his primary objective. It is not. His primary objective is faithfulness. It's, it's simply to declare what he believes in, to state the facts, that he's on trial because he believes in the resurrection. And how could he say anything less? The Christian faith depends on the resurrection. The Christian faith rises and falls with the rising of Jesus. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. And so he says, this is what it comes down to, the resurrection. Now, of course, he doesn't say the resurrection of Christ here, but verse 11 says, Jesus told Paul, you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Clearly, that's either implied or we, we don't, we're not given the whole speech. But Paul is talking about not just some idea of a resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection that Christ has secured, and he can do no other. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. We have nothing. Sometimes people will be receptive to that message. Sometimes not. To live before the face of God means you believe it in, in either case. And you preach it in either case, whether people will receive it or not. And that can be hard. Living before God will mean difficulty. It will mean unpopularity. But it comes with this blessing. And you need to hear this. Living before the face of God comes with this blessing. It, the blessing is this. When we live before God, Christ stands beside us. When we live before God, Christ stands beside us. If we position ourselves before the face of God in all of our endeavors, in our work, in our schooling, in our child rearing, in our marriages, in the trials that we go through, if we're seeking to please God, if we have an aim to glorify God in all these things, we have this promise that there's somebody standing right beside us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives to plead for me. That's Jesus. He's there at the throne. If we put ourselves before the throne, we have him standing beside us to help us, to encourage us in the task of living before God. And so first we've seen Paul before the Lord, but now secondly and finally we see the Lord beside Paul. Look at the immense help that he receives there in verse 11. We've just read in verse 10 that Paul was literally about to be torn to pieces. So the Romans thrown back in prison for his own protection. And there at night, we read this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, 
Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I said, this is an immense help. This is a great encouragement. Well, let's be honest. It doesn't really sound like it on the face of it, does it? Jesus, in effect, is saying, take courage. You're dealing with a lot of difficult stuff here in Jerusalem, but get used to it. It's going to happen in Rome, too. How is that encouraging? Well, it is for at least three reasons. First, this is an encouragement to Paul because it's a confirmation that he's doing the right thing. Think about how many times Paul had stared down death on account of the gospel. How many times had he enraged people that he used to work closely with? How many times do you think Paul, as he laid his head on his pillow at night, thought to himself, am I doing this all wrong because it sure isn't easy? Maybe I've got this backwards. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever been so convinced about something? And yet everything seems to be working against you that you start to rethink your conviction. You start to reconsider. You start to doubt. Um, maybe, you know, you're certain of biblical ethics in terms of sexuality. Until every movie or show you watch says otherwise. And then you think, well, maybe it's not so bad if people sleep together before marriage, live together before marriage. Maybe I'm the backward one. Or maybe you're convinced about what the Bible says about gender and sexuality until every policy at work or school suggests the opposite. And then you start to think, well, maybe, maybe love is love, like they've been saying. Who am I to say that's wrong? Maybe you're convinced that the Bible has strict commands for how you should use your speech. But then you start to waver a bit because you're surrounded by vulgarity in your, your different spheres of life. Maybe your family even, uh, if not workplaces and, and school settings. And so, well, if everybody else is doing it, surely it can't be wrong. And yet Jesus arrives at Paul's side to tell him, you're not crazy. You are doing the right thing and keep on doing it. That's an encouragement. Second... If Paul must testify in Rome, that means he will be preserved here in Jerusalem. So implied in what Jesus says is, is a promise of preservation, of protection. Even from these irate mobs that would seek to tear Paul to shreds. And then we come to verse 12. The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath. We're not even going to eat anything until this man's dead. Over 40 of them have this plan. We're going to say we want to bring him before the council again. But when he's on the way there, we're going to ambush him. We're going to kill him. So the question is, why do you think it was that Paul's nephew got word of this plot? Why do you think it is that the tribune took the nephew in and took the time to hear him out? Why is it that the tribune believed him? Why is it that the tribune decided, let's take him out at the cover of night with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen? What is that? That's Christ. We see this, this mini army transporting Paul to protect him. Look beyond that. That's Jesus. That's Jesus standing beside Paul. This is the Lord Jesus Christ preserving his servant. You know, we don't need guardian angels. We have something much better. We have a guardian God who orchestrates his providence to preserve his people, to carry out the tasks that he gives them. George Whitfield famously said that we are immortal until our work on earth is done. 
We are immortal until our work on earth is done. So Jesus will not let anything touch Paul. Why? Because he must testify also in Rome. You must get to Rome so you will be kept safe until then. And that applies to us as well, friends. Until you have completed your part in God's plan, God will undoubtedly, unfailingly, and unmistakably preserve you. You will be immortal. And indeed, we know that's exactly what happens for Paul. He does make it to Rome. He survives a shipwreck along the way. But eventually, the time comes for his testimony. Did Jesus promise that it would be easy? No, he just promised he would preserve him to that time. Paul tells us it wasn't easy, actually. If you want to look, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul gives us insight on this. At the very conclusion of the last letter he ever wrote before he died, 2 Timothy 4 and verse... 16, Paul's made it to Rome, and he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. No Christians from the the small church in Rome came to, to support Paul. It was hard. But then he tells Timothy, and he tells us this glorious and heart, um, Heart reassuring truth in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me. Just as he stood by me in that prison back in Jerusalem. He stands by me in Rome, even when all others had deserted me. Friends, Jesus does that for all of us. Not, Not in the same way that he does for Paul, but actually in a more profound way. He has sent his very spirit into our hearts to... To see Jesus next to Paul is a reminder that Jesus is with us, is is within us. He never leaves his people. And that's the third encouragement that Paul receives there from that nighttime visit from his Savior. First, we said it encouraged Paul because it told him that he um, he, he wasn't wrong in pursuing his task. The second encouragement was that he would be preserved until he accomplished the task. But then third and most importantly of all, it was an encouragement simply because it gave him Jesus. He's right there. He's right there. And that has to be the greatest inducement and encouragement to you and me today as we live Coram Deo before the face of God. As we face that difficult task of dying to sin and living to righteousness, living before the face of God, seeking to to please him and him alone. What will sustain us? How can we do it? Colossians 1.10 says that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's a tall order, but that's what it means to live quorum Deo. How can we do it? It has to be Jesus. It has to be the one who has lived eternity before the face of the Father. It has to be him coming alongside us and taking us by the hand and saying there is nothing better, friend, than basking before the glorious presence and the gracious face of your God. You are in the right place. You are doing the right thing. Take it from me, Jesus says. We have Christ with us. We just need our eyes open to see that. Like Elisha's servant, we need our eyes to open Uh, So that we can see that the one who is for us is greater than those who are against us. And like Paul, we need to be able to say, the Lord stood by me 
and strengthen me. Because he does. Do you believe it? Do you know it? Can you say that? Oh, friends, I am convinced that you and I could face a thousand devils unafraid if we truly believed that Jesus was beside us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is our heart's desire to live for you and before you. And yet we acknowledge that that is hard to do. The devil certainly does not want us to do it. The world will not champion us in that goal of of pleasing you and having an eye to your glory alone. And even our own flesh faints and fails at this commission to please you. We want to please ourselves. We want to go with the crowd. We want to do that which is easier. We need to be reminded of the message of Acts 23. The Lord stands beside us. He strengthens us. He is with us. He never leaves us. He never lets us go. Lord, this is the promise to to all Christians, that we have Jesus. And so our prayer is that we would believe that promise, that we would take hold of that reality, and that we would face the world unafraid, knowing that the Savior stands at our side. We pray this for his sake.